The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, guys, Revelation 19 is we're going to be this morning. Like I said, a classic, classic Christmas text, but we'll see. Maybe I'll be able to bring it home. This is part of our Advent series. Now, some of you guys have grown up in churches where you went through Advent at Christmas season, even though you didn't know what it was or what was going on. Some of you have never been a part of that at all. And Advent, as we've been saying, is really just a word that means coming. And the idea with Advent is it's the first part of the Christian calendar that the church, the early church, set aside to consider the first coming of Jesus Christ, his faithfulness to his promises, that he said he would come, he would send his son, and all of those things, and to to understand the reality that that did occur, but then that the hope from that, the knowledge that he keeps his promises, would fuel hope in us today to know that he's going to keep the rest of those promises as well, specifically that he's coming again. So in Advent, you look back and your hope is built knowing that he's coming again as we look forward. And it's this whole idea of moving from darkness to light and realizing that rescue is on the way, that the king is coming. And so for the end of our series here today, we're going to consider that, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, The first text that we looked at when we started this series was Hope Promised. And we talked about the reality that in the midst of darkness, looking at Israel's situation, even some of the specific geographical things that were going on in Israel at the time, that in spite of deep darkness, deep pain, that there was this promise given to them by the Lord that he would send his son. And then in the second week, we looked at hope anticipated, this idea that because that promise has happened, that that's what we want to keep in our forefront. We want those promises to be what we run to. That we take our hope in God, that we take our refuge in God, that we run to God and we trust in God. And then last week, we look at hope lived. And that the idea that this hope that we have is more than just a thing, but but it's, it's, it's even a power that can help us get through even the most difficult of situations. And so today, we're going to talk about hope assured. And and this is my goal with you here today, is that as we walk through some of this stuff in Revelation 19, and man, there is some interesting stuff, there's some crazy stuff, there's some awesome stuff, and there's some scary stuff in this text. And we don't have time today, although, man, I was... I was re- reading through all this stuff yesterday and studying this week, and I was like, man, now I, I kind of want to teach Revelation now. It's just fun to read. But, but our goal is not to go through and dissect all the different things that are there. We don't have that sort of time. My, my goal today, this morning, is to just try to get us to understand that this stuff is absolutely real. Like, what we're reading here will one day happen. And, and, and to maybe even open up our minds a little bit to think about that. Like, what will that be like? What would that experience be like? How is that going to feel? How's it going to sound? What is it going to be like? And then knowing how real that is, what does that mean to us even now? Like if you know that it's real, like you know that it's real. In the same way that you know, Lord willing, that Christmas Day is going to come, so you bought gifts because you know on Christmas morning you're going to get up and open gifts with your kids. In that same way, you've prepared for that moment, but in if we know that this is real, how would that affect us? And what kind of hopeful people would we be? That is our goal. So we're here in Revelation 19, and we're going to consider this. And now it's, it's important because look, waiting is hard. There, there's an element of anticipation when something exciting is on the horizon that's fun. There is. Um, Christmas, for example, 
I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina, and my whole family lived within about 20 minutes of where I lived. It was a big, big family, and we had the big classic kind of southern Christmases there, um, and we would sort of divvy it up. So on, on Christmas Eve, we went to my mom's family's house in Candler, North Carolina. Candler, North Carolina. It's, it's as country as it sounds. It's where there are cricks, not creeks. You don't climb trees there, you climb them. You know, like that kind of stuff. That's Candler, North Carolina. That's where we would go for my mom's family. And then, then we would drive home that night. And the next morning we would have Christmas at home with our family in our, in our house. And then in the afternoon we would go to the other side of Asheville, North Carolina, where my dad's family was. So we would divvy it all out. Some of you guys are nodding. You're doing some of that same kind of stuff too, right? So this is what we would do. And Christmas for me like, I, I have a great nostalgia attached for, to Christmas for me, like, in my childhood. Like, there, it, it was so much fun. I remember, like, the wish books. You guys remember the wish books? The Sears catalog and the JCPenney catalog. You young people, you have no idea. You have no idea how awesome the wish book was. I'm telling you, man, I used to study that wish book, it, with, like, more than I study scripture. You know what I mean? Like, with, with highlighters and, like, references and, hmm, and study this dog-earing pages. You know what I'm talking about. Circle the stuff that you want, leave it for mom and dad, hope that's what you got, all that kind of stuff. There was great, great anticipation with that. And even like my sister was even worse than me. Like she would get up sometimes at like literally two o'clock in the morning, wake up, go into mom and dad's room and be like, is it Christmas yet? And mom and dad were better than me because I would be like, no, it's still Christmas Eve. But no, they are like, all right, it's Christmas. And we would get up at two, three in the morning and open gifts, and then they were like, once we were, you know, completely distracted with our new toys or whatever, mom and dad go back to bed, and we're like playing all morning, like that was Christmas in our household, and I remember the anticipation for that. Do you guys? Like, I remember driving home from Candler, North Carolina, and, and as a kid, like looking out the window, wondering if I would see Santa Claus going through, looking for red noses. You know what I'm talking about? I remember being at home like one year. I may have told you guys this story before, but one year I actually slept with my window open in my bedroom and it was freezing cold that night, but I wanted to hear Santa come and I was concerned. I've brought this up before. We've never adequately dealt with the reality that not every house has a chimney. And so I was concerned. What does Santa do? And so I slept with my window open all night and I would just listen. And my next door neighbor, I'm not joking, had wind chimes on their porch and it freaked me out every time the wind would blow. Ah, Santa? Nope, not Santa, not Santa. All night, that's how I slept. Parents came in freezing cold inside. Like there was such anticipation. But short-term anticipation and waiting's kind of easy. The farther out you get, it's a little harder. So like, let's back up from Christmas Eve. Let's go a few weeks early. I remember one year when the Atari 2600 was hot. You guys remember the Atari 2600, right? That's the last video game system I was good at, just so you guys know. I've been bad at all of them ever since, but I was good at that one. And there were two games I wanted. I wanted Pole Position and I wanted River Raid. Anybody remember those two games? River Raid was my favorite. Jet airplane flying over the water, blowing up bad guys. For some reason, though, if the plane moved off the blue into the green, which is grass, the plane instantly crashed, which I never understood. It's a plane. It should be able to fly over anything. But that's how the game went. And I wanted those games. And it was like maybe a month before Christmas, and mom had done some Christmas shopping early, very different than what I tend to do these days. And 
under the tree were two packages that like I knew. Some of you know the shape already of the box that Atari 2600 games were in. I knew it and there were two of them. These are my games. And it's a month before Christmas and waiting is hard. So you know what I did? Parents, listen, buy good tape to wrap your gifts. Okay, trust me on that. Buy good tape. Mom didn't buy good tape. Peeled right open. Opened up the wrapper, open up the box, slide the video game cartridge out, in goes something like, I don't know, Pac-Man. <laughs> uh, so devious, right? So devious. The different cartridge in, tape it back up, and for a month before Christmas, I'm playing the two video games that I, with mom and dad, and they had no idea. They had no idea. I'm like right in the room with them playing the game. They had no idea. No idea. Waiting's hard. <laughs> Why are you still laughing? <laughs> like none of you ever did that. You snooped for presents too. All of you did. You know it. Waiting's hard. Waiting really long periods of time is even harder. Like when hope doesn't seem, when, when that thing you're waiting for doesn't really seem to be on the horizon, that makes it even harder. Or let me say it better this way. When you can't see it on the horizon yourself, it gets harder to wait for. And so sometimes along the way, you get distracted by other things. Or you stop remembering that it's there. You carry yourself in such a way as like, oh, it'll be here eventually, but I really don't need to worry about it right now. That's kind of how Israel was, actually. I mean, they had not even heard a prophetic word from the Lord in like 400 years. And when Jesus was born, the story that we'll look at tomorrow night in our Christmas Eve service in Luke chapter 2, like when that happened, how many people were waiting for that? Oh, I know Israel would say they're waiting for that. We are waiting for the Messiah. Of course we are. But you know what? There were some prophecies given to Israel years and years later that were somewhat specific about the birth of Jesus that there should have been people, if they really believed it was true, and if they were living that that's the hope that they run to in every situation in life, there should have been more people there. There should have been more people. I mean, like, literally, when you read the story, who was really waiting? Okay, Mary was waiting, but let's, let's be honest, she had a little bit of an advantage in that. The shepherds, but they got a clear sign from the sky. Maybe Simeon at the dedication of Jesus, because he, he says when he holds the baby in his hands, he says, Lord, may your servant, your servant may now depart in peace. He's like, I, I have finally found the one I've been waiting for for so long, but most people weren't ready. And one night, Here's this group of shepherds stood up on a hill sometime. Just remember, guys, like, they were just at work. It was just a work night, like any other night. No real reason to have any different anticipation or anything. They were just at work. And just imagine what that would have been like, you know? The sky peeling open, this army or choir of angels there, and here comes this message. It's this message of peace. Fear not. There's good news, glad tidings, good joy, peace on earth, and goodwill to all men. Like, there's this amazing message that happens. Like, I wonder what that was like. It was just a work day. It was like a Tuesday. And yet, this display happens that completely changes everything from that moment forward. That's what actually happened. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they've been waiting for for so long. And, and so, what about us? 
Well, the purpose of Advent is to look back and consider the first coming, to consider that night, but also to look forward with hope and confidence to know that the other promises that he's made will absolutely come true, specifically the second coming, that one day our king will return. One day Jesus will come again. And I don't mean like, oh yeah, I know, I know. I mean like, church, hear me. It's going to happen. Like one day, you're just going to be at work if the Lord should do it in our day, in our lifetime, one day you might just be at work and everything will change. It, it'll be a moment really similar in some ways to Luke chapter two. It'll probably be scary at first. There'll probably be a moment of what in the world's going on. Th- th- there'll be a, a glorious reception. It, it, it's really similar and yet it's really, really different. Because while for some, it's a declaration of peace on earth and goodwill to all men. In fact, the peace on earth that we've been waiting for all along. For others, it's actually a declaration of war and judgment and pain. And right now you're like, we chose the worst church service on Christmas Eve Eve to go to in our whole valley. I might bring it home. We will see, but we're going to try. Amen? So this is what we're doing. We want to look at and consider with hope knowing that he's kept his promises, the fact that he promises to come again. And then I want to think about, like, if that's what we're waiting for, how does that affect us? Like, what should our priorities be? Amen, church? So this is what we're going to look at. So let's take a look, if you will. And by the way, let's look at this verse, actually, with this in mind. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. Now if you want to do some really interesting and fun stuff to study in your own devotional uh, this week as you're walking through the scriptures. Man, spend some time this week looking at Luke chapter 2 and looking at Revelation 19 and think about the comparisons, the similarities, the stuff that actually is in play here. Even in this writing here in Thessalonians, there's this example like, hey, as a pregnant woman is waiting and you you go back to Luke chapter 2 and you think about as this pregnant woman was waiting on the coming king, so too we are to live in such, in that same way. And so think about it. If a pregnant woman is certain that the baby's coming, there's certain things that she will do and not do because of that. For example, if you're two days away from your due date, not too many pregnant women get on airplanes and fly across the world. It's just not a great idea. Instead, you do what? You have your bag packed. You have your hospital bag ready. There's an anticipation of a certain event to come. And Paul tells us, hey, in the same way, we should be ready. But we may not know exactly when. It's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come at nighttime with surprise. But you're not children of darkness that could be completely taken by surprise and have no idea what's going on and then quaking in fear. No, no, no. You are children of the day. You're children of light. You can understand what this is, and there should be some excitement attached to that. And so with that being the case, Revelation 19 comes. And let me give you just a quick background on that. Think about this. Revelation is is written by a guy named John, one of the disciples of Jesus. 
And at the time that he writes it, he's in exile on an island called Patmos because of persecution that's going on through the church. So I wonder what he was feeling in those moments. I mean, this is a guy who is as close to Jesus as you could possibly be. This is a guy who would argue with the other disciples about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, who can sit at the right and who can sit at the left of Jesus when he takes the throne as the king. Because we're big deals now, right, Jesus? We're your disciples. We're important. We're going to rule and reign with you. So where's my seat going to be and all this kind of stuff? And now it's not really playing out exactly like he would have thought that it's going to play out. In fact, now he's on an island exiled because of persecution in the church. He has no idea what's going on in the world at the moment. He doesn't know which of his friends are still alive and which ones aren't. He doesn't know what's happening at all. And it would be so easy for him to be tempted, to be just enveloped, if you will, in the darkness or in the hopelessness of that situation. And then all of a sudden, there's this encounter with the living God. And this angel appears to him. And he's like, hey, get out a pen, John. I got some stuff you're going to write down. And so there's this stuff, there's letters written to the churches that existed at that time. There's letters written to those churches that we learn from even still now. But there's also things that are written there that talk about and point to God's redemptive plan for history and how things might unfold. And in this book, at this particular point, he's just finished Revelation chapter 18, which is a kind of a dark chapter. It's the fall of Babylon. It's when the, these systems of the world and the idolatry that's been built up and the way that people live outside of the glory of God and outside of submission to the kingdom of God, everything is crumbling and falling apart. But as that's happening in heaven, there's not darkness and pouting, there's rejoicing because the day is near. And so take a look at what happens in beginning in verse six. It says, and then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. Now church, there's something special about those quiet, personal, intimate one-on-one times with the Lord. Amen, church? There's something special about those times when it's just you, your Bible, the Spirit of God listening for Him, pouring your heart out to Him. There's something really special about those moments. But church, also hear me. There is a place for really loud noise. Really deafening loud worship is what's taking place here. This is like shocking noise. You ever had one of those things where a noise happens and once you realize what the actual noise is, you're okay, but when it first happens, it scares you? You ever had one of those moments? Like also growing up as a kid, super into airplanes. Like not just airplanes, like military airplanes. But where I lived in Asheville, North Carolina, you didn't get to see too many military airplanes. Um, Not like we do where the Klamath Falls planes come around. Like there's not a base anywhere near Asheville, North Carolina. So it never happens. But I remember one time being at like a, it was like a county fair or something like that. I don't remember exactly what it was. There was a flyby that took place that I didn't know was coming. 
and I wasn't facing where the plane was coming from. Nobody around me was cluing me to anything that was going to happen. And all of a sudden, this F-18, a Navy fighter jet, comes screaming across the place, like really, really low, full flame coming out the back of the engine, like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. But it wasn't cool for just a moment. For a moment, it terrified me. You know what I'm talking about? Like, ah! Now, once I realized that Oh, that is awesome. But it took a second to get there. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is what's happening here. The skies are thundering with the sound of worship and praise. Take a look at what Charles Spurgeon says about worship. I always love this quote. He says this, We ought not to worship God with a half, in a half-hearted sort of way, as if it were now our duty to bless God but we felt it to be a weary business and we couldn't get through it as quickly as we could and and to have it done with. And the sooner the better, no, no. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Come, my heart, wake up and summon all the powers which wait upon thee. Mechanical worship is easy but worthless. Come, rouse yourself, my brother, Rouse thyself, O oh my own soul. He's like, hey, look, there's a place where you go, no, 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 no. This is the king. Think about the way we cheer sports teams. Think about the way we cheer concerts. Think about the way we get excited about the things that are important to us, but we forget sometimes the reality of these things. And sometimes our worship, it's almost as if our imagination or, or our mind forgets how real some of these things are. But I assure you, if the sky cracked open right now and Jesus Christ came through, you would not be like, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. Like, that is not how it's going to go down. It's going to be incredible, powerful, loud. I know some of you don't like loud music. Yeah, well, there'll be no pain in heaven either. Whatever. Just listen. (laughs) It's going to be amazing. And the knowledge that that's true should, we should remind ourselves, like, hey, our worship should probably have some enthusiasm attached to it to know that this is real. It's going to be so loud, guys. So loud and so powerful and so amazing. But the, so here's this worship that happens. And John's there and this, this sound just erupts through the sky of worship. But it's not just generic worship. It's specific. The worship that's taking place in this moment is happening for a specific reason. And what is that reason? Look at verse 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now those of you that were here last week, remember, when, when, when you are betrothed or when you are engaged with someone in the culture at that time, all that stuff is, there's all sorts of details once you become engaged that are sort of hammered out in advance. And it's a form of contract similar to like signing a marriage contract or a marriage license today. And even though the actual marriage ceremony hasn't taken place yet, even though the marriage hasn't been fully consummated yet, it takes a divorce to break even an engagement. It's a really big deal. And then on top of that, the marriage feast, the celebration of that, there's nothing bigger than that. Like the marriage supper, by the way, the Holy Spirit is Southern. It's supper, not dinner. The marriage supper 
is the party to end all parties in Jewish culture. In fact, there are many rabbinical teachings that actually taught that obedience to the commandments may be suspended if it is suspected obedience to those commandments would affect the joy in the marriage party. Imagine a pastor saying that. Party on tonight and no rules. Like That's literally what some of the rabbis would teach because they wanted to preserve the joy of the marriage feast and celebration. And church, listen, hear me on this. Now, I know saying bride of Christ doesn't tend to win a lot of guys over until they understand what's going on, right? We're also about to talk about Cinderella and some other things, but hang in there, dudes. We're going to get to war also. Stay with me. But here's the idea. In heaven, there is an eruption of worship that is like thunder peeling through the sky. Why? Because Jesus is coming now to finally claim his own. Church, that means... That's such a big deal that is even right now being waited on in heaven that Jesus desires to have us with him in the fullness of the kingdom of God so much that when the day finally comes, there is an eruption of worship in heaven that we can't even imagine. That is how much our God and our King longs to be reunited with his bride. That's a warm fuzzy right there. Amen, church? Like that. Jesus is by far looking forward to the day that we are reunited with him more than we are. I, tr- I promise you that. He cannot wait till that moment when we stand face to face. Now, we know that. We want to do that. We go, man, I can't wait for the day that I can actually see him. I can't wait for the day that my doubts are gone. I can't wait for the day that all these weaknesses are gone. But as bad as we want that, it pales in comparison to how bad your Savior cannot wait to have you standing in front of him. And that's awesome. And his waiting and his patience is not flawed like ours are. And he doesn't get distracted like we do. He is longing for the day that we are there and our faith is made sight. And all of heaven erupts in worship when that takes place. That is awesome. Amen, church? Is that warm fuzzy in there, church? It should be. It should be. This is what's happening here. This is the joy of the occasion. Verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Translation, this supper, you really want to be on the invite list. You are so blessed to end up on this invite list. There's there's three suppers in Scripture that are really emphasized, and every person in the history of the world will be a part of at least one of them. There's the Lord's Supper, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then there's the great supper of the Lord, which we're about to see. And uh, not to give too much away, that's not the one you want to be at. But he's saying, blessed are you, church. People, blessed are, you will never have a greater moment than when that feast starts. It's going to be an incredible moment. And he says, these are the true words of God. Verse 10, John has a reaction that I think is actually a little bit understandable. Wrong, but understandable. Verse 10, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. 
For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I can imagine how this would be. Like, this is a huge moment. Like, think about how, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tom Hanks, what's the movie, Castaway? He loses Wilson and freaks out. Remember that? Wilson! This is way better than that, right? This is an angel of God appearing to him. And this is revelation of things that we can't even imagine. And John's so overcome. And here's this being. We're even about to see in descriptions coming up that there are angels that are standing in front of the sun. And yet they're so bright. The sun isn't blotting them out. They are visible over the sun. So we can't even imagine what kind of being. We can't even imagine really what John's seeing. And he's so overwhelmed with all this stuff. He kind of falls down in worship. And the angel's like, no, 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 no. Don't worship me. I'm nothing. Worship God. And church, here's a good little side note. Nothing, nothing, no matter how awesome it is, is worthy of our worship beyond Jesus Christ and him alone. Amen, church? Like, it's good to remember that even in a season where a lot of people want a lot of things, and some of the things are awesome. But that's not where we put our hope. That's not where we put our faith. It's not where we put ourselves. We do not throw ourselves in worship to any of those things. Only God is worthy of our worship, no matter how awesome something might be. And so he tells him, no, 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 don't worship me. Worship God. And then it happens. The people of Israel had a prayer. It's recorded in Isaiah 64. Here's a, this is a prayer for this day. Isaiah 64 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. What's about to take place, this moment, is the climax, the pinnacle of everything that has ever happened in all of human history. Everything is built to this when the sky rips open and the king returns to claim what is his. And it says it this way in verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Church, this is the culmination of everything. This is the moment that whether you know it or not, your soul has always been longing for. When the king returns. It's a little different entrance than the Luke 2 story, isn't it? From the horse's manger to riding in on the horse's back. From blood at birth and being wrapped in swaddling clothes to his own blood being wrapped in a mock robe at his crucifixion to a robe dipped in blood that is not his own but the blood of his enemies. It is a very, very different entrance. 
and the King of kings and Lord of lords comes and authority is turned upside down. This is not the king comes and now it's the Christianizing of authority structures all over the world. Now all the governments of the world get it and we're like, oh, that's our king. No, no, no. This is a complete and total displacement of every authority on the face of the earth and the setting up of the true king. And he comes in authority. And he comes to make war. Merry Christmas. You're dismissed. Right? You're like, okay, (laughs) never coming here on Christmas Eve again. And that's what he's coming. And look, it's worth pausing and thinking about that. Because it's really easy to go, okay, this doesn't fit my sentimental picture of baby Jesus lying in a manger. Or or of even the Jesus stories as he's caring for the poor and pulling children into his lap and healing the sick and all that kind of stuff. But church, listen, any construct that we make of the person of Jesus Christ, no matter how warm and fuzzy and how happy we might be with it, any construct that doesn't include the reality of his righteousness and his judgment will find no backing in the stories of the second coming in Scripture. That's not the way he comes back. He comes back to eradicate his enemies. He comes back to wipe out darkness for all and be the light of the world. That's the purpose. This whole Advent series, Darkness to Light, he's the pinnacle of all of that. This is why he comes. But listen, his wars are not what we're used to. They're not, it's not coming in war because he has this vain ambition like the leaders of our human history have. It's, it's not about the expanse of his domain and wanting more and more and more. It's not about a lust for power or authority or, or any of those kinds of things. This is God coming back to claim what is his own and to wipe out what has plagued his own for far too long. This is righteousness. This is the way it's supposed to be. And though it seems heavy sometimes and dark, and it is, man, look at what goes on. Verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. Now what kind of meal is this? Not a good one. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur." And the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And the birds were gorged with their flesh. That's tough, man. That's tough. That's hard. Sometimes it's hard to think about that. In fact, some people read that and struggle with it. And I think a lot of times the reason that we might struggle with it or we might read it without joy or excitement is maybe because, maybe because we're worried about which side of that feast we're actually going to be on. Maybe there's a lack of assurance in our own place, which we should deal with because, by the way, this is real. 
Or maybe it's out of fear for those that we know don't know the Lord at this point, for those that we know would be considered, if you will, the enemies of the Lord at this point. But the good news is this, guys. We have the wedding invitations. The Lord has given us the gospel of Jesus Christ to come and tell people about the reality of his first coming and the certainty and the assurance of his second coming that people might be prepared. And we need to understand a couple of things as well. The war that he makes when he comes, number one, understand this. This dramatic display of judgment comes after a long period of grace, a long period of patience, a long period where his spirit and his people have been calling and calling and calling and inviting and inviting and inviting people to be part of the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is not an unfair war. It is righteous and good. And second of all, understand this. This is war against the enemies of God. Remember when we started this series, we were in Genesis 3 and we looked at the fallen, the story of the fall and the curse. And remember, the serpent's there and Adam and Eve are there and God's dealing with the fallout of what Adam and Eve have, dis- have done and what the serpent has done and all of this. And, and he says to the serpent in Genesis 3.15, you, you guys remember, right? He says, okay, one day, you're, you're going to bruise my son's heel, but my son will crush your head. And this is that moment. This is the moment where Jesus Christ comes to claim those who are his, where God the Father says, sin and death will no longer plague my people. This is when God comes and he executes judgment on cancer. He executes judgment on depression and abuse and all of the things that have made so much of life dark and difficult, even our own sinful nature, that we, we, our own guilt that we wrestle with, he's coming and he's saying, enough of this. And he's making all things new. And church, we've got to be excited about this. Like, you've got to be, you will not share something you're not excited about. You've got to be excited about this. We've got to realize that will be the most amazing moment in the history of the world. Everything we wrestle with will be gone. Everything we long for will be put back together. Like, I'll give you an example. Tomorrow night or Tuesday morning, you'll get together with family and you're going to open up gifts. And you're going to get new stuff. And if we're honest about it, we would have to admit new stuff actually creates a feeling, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed that? Like it feels good. A new phone, new clothes, a new car, whatever it is, the new thing. And I'm not talking about idolatry. I'm just saying there's a feeling about that newness that's real, that comes. The problem is it doesn't last. What is that feeling? Church, I'm telling you, What you're going to experience on Christmas Eve night, on Christmas morning, as you're opening those gifts and you're feeling like, man, a new shirt makes me feel good. A new jacket makes me feel good. That is your soul's longing for the day when everything is and stays new. When there's no more decay. 
There's no more upgrades. There's no more improvements. Like, that's gone. Like, this year, I got a new phone. It was an iPhone 8 Plus, a nice phone. It was until September, right? And then the new one came out. So yesterday, my wife got to upgrade her phone. She now has, I don't know, the X, the XR, whatever. I don't know. And now I'm looking at my phone like, her camera's better than mine. Let's take a picture of the tree. Guess we'll use your phone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but when you get that new thing, guys, that C.S. Lewis would call those things memory traces because your soul is designed for that feeling always. The problem is, is we try to feed that feeling with things that just can't sustain. They can't hold up. And over time, they fade and they get old, and they decay, and they disappoint, and then we long for the new thing, and we long for that feeling again. And church, what I'm telling you is, like, I, I, man, enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy Christmas Eve. I'm going to enjoy Christmas morning, but watch when you feel that feeling, because you will. Unless you get socks, you'll feel it. <laughs> Actually, the truth is, the older you get, socks ain't a bad gift, right? Like, <laughs> you ever notice, like, socks even make old shoes feel new again, you know what I'm saying? So, socks are okay. But watch, watch for that feeling, recognize it, and realize that, you know what that is? That's actually my soul longing for the day that the sky peels open and worship happens that's so loud it's startling and that on a horse comes Jesus Christ and his saints as well. And Satan is eradicated, death is eradicated, all of this fallenness is eradicated, and everything is made new again. To give away further the end of the book, if you turn one page to the right, you'll see Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Guys, just think about that for just a minute. Jesus who said, I am going to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. For in my Father's house there is many rooms. And here God is finally fulfilling that promise. He's saying, look at it right there. The dwelling place of God is with man. Your room is ready. Your place is prepared. Come in and check this out. This is going to be incredible. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. In other words, this is going to happen, and it should affect us. Peter, when he writes about these things, and he writes about the fire that will purify the earth, and he writes about the, the people who go, oh, you Christians, you've been saying this for years and years and years, and it never actually happens. He writes about all this stuff, and, and he says, as he's bringing it to a culmination, he says, knowing that these things are true, what manner of persons ought we to be? And I'll tell you one thing we should be. We should be excited and loud. Knowing this is going to happen. Because if we're not excited about it, we will not share it. And if we do not share it, they'll be at the wrong feast. 
And what, what father gives his kids gifts on Christmas and wants to see the kid go, that's oh, all right. Thanks, Dad. I'll play with it eventually. Right now, I'm going to go outside. Wouldn't that break your heart? Like, don't you want to see your kid with joy and excitement as he opens the gift that you've given him and then think about the scriptures that talk about how good our God is who gives gifts like his Holy Spirit? Just imagine. And remember, like I said before, no one's waiting for this day more than Jesus Christ himself. For the day he gets to stand before you and go, God, Guys, it's over. It's over. The work frustrations you have, they're over. The pain, it's over. The the losing family members to cancer, that's gone. The hurt, the agony, it's gone. The guilt, the self-doubt, Jeff, it's Jeff, it's over. All things are new. And then he starts wiping tears off our face because I guarantee you they'll be there. Church, are you excited for that? Yeah? We should be. We should be excited for that. It's real and it's going to happen. And my prayers, man, may we have the same anticipation for that that we have on Christmas Day. And as we go through anticipation for things like Christmas Day, may it lead us to recognize and realize that, oh, that's pointing to something even better than this gift. No phone compares to what God has. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what the Lord has prepared for me. Praise God, may I worship him with noise. Amen, church? Can we do that then? Stand with me. Let's pray. I've asked Sam and the gang to come out and close us in song, but let's just take a moment to pause and pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you have not left us as orphans. Thank you that you have sent your son. Thank you that what we celebrate in this season, that baby being born, was just the beginning of something so amazing, so incredible, so powerful, and so real. God, awaken our affections for you in this way, Lord. Help us to live with hope, knowing this day is coming. Help us to live with excitement for this day. Help us to have joy for this day. Help us to speak of this day. And God, may your spirit empower us to worship you. As we prepare even now for that day in eternity when we join with the heavenly hosts and we sing, Holy is the Lord. Hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty. He reigns. Lord, you are faithful. You are true. And we thank you, Lord, that you have come. We thank you for your grace that you've poured out on us. We thank you, Lord, that you have not saw fit to leave us in difficulty and decay, though we absolutely deserve it. We thank you, Lord, that you would go so far as to send your son to die on our behalf. And we thank you, Lord, that you're coming again. So, Lord, in the same way that a child today has excitement and anticipation looking forward to that moment on Christmas morning where they open those gifts, may we have that same joy and excitement in our own hearts, not for gifts, but for the day that we see you again. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.